there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hi, it's Rachel Cook, your modern mentor, and I am so excited to share today's episode with you. It's an interview with New York Times bestselling author, Kim Scott. You may know her from her work on Radical Candor. And today we'll talk all about her new book, Just Work, Get Stuff Done Fast and Fair, though she uses a different S word in her actual title. Drawing inspiration from literature, philosophy, behavioral economics, and cutting-edge organizational research, Kim Scott provides a framework that helps us identify the different attitudes and behaviors that combine to create unproductive working environments. Here we go. Kim, it is a tremendous honor and a pleasure to have you on the show today. I, for listeners, I'm actually speaking to Kim on launch day of her new book, Just Work. So I will confess, as a fan and as a student of your work around radical candor, I was a little bit surprised at first glance when I saw the subject matter of your new book, Just Work, which focuses, and I'll let you talk more about it, but uh, it focuses on creating just and effective work environments, right? But I will say that by the time I finished reading your introduction to the book, which I found extremely personal and vulnerable... The link between those bold, courageous conversations and the emotional safety of the workplace became extremely clear, and I absolutely devoured your book. So I would love to start with that vulnerability that I mentioned, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about what drove you not only to write this tremendous book, but to be so reflective and frankly, so accountable in telling some of your stories. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. It's a great honor to be here. So when you write a book about feedback, as Radical Candor was, you're going to get a lot of it. And so here's an example of some of the feedback that I got after Radical Candor was published. I was giving a workshop at a tech company here in San Francisco, and the CEO of that company was an old friend of mine and a colleague, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And after I gave the presentation... She pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I really like Radical Candor and I'm excited to roll it out on the team. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I've got to tell you that it's a lot harder for me to practice Radical Candor than it is for you. And it's probably a lot harder for you than it is for your husband, who's a, a white engineer in, in Silicon Valley. 
And she said, as soon as I offer even the most compassionate criticism, I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew that this was true. And I also, it, it sort of made me realize five or six things all at the same time. The first thing was that I had not been the kind of colleague that I wanted to be. I had not been an upstander for her because I had known her for the better part of a decade. And I suddenly realized I had never seen her seem even the slightest bit annoyed. And believe me, in that period of time, she had what to be pissed off about. And it never occurred to me to notice the toll that this must take on her. So that's number one. Number two, it also made me realize that just as I had been in denial about the things that were happening to my colleague who I cared about, I was in denial about the things that were happening to me. And this was a big deal. I, I realized that, you know, of course it was absolutely true that it was much harder for me to put my own ideas into practice than it was for my husband to put those ideas into practice. And, you know, it's hard for the author of Radical Candor to admit it, but I was, I, I was deep in denial. And so part of what I wanted to do with this book, Just Work, is, is to come out of denial so that we can create the kinds of environments that we all long for. I don't know anybody who wants to do a bad job at work. I don't know anybody who hires somebody because they want to create an environment that makes it impossible for the people they hire to do great work. And yet something is always getting in the way. It's harder than it needs to be to just work. And so I really wanted to explore that. That's such an incredible story. There's really quite a humility in there, right? You think about going out there as the face of radical candor. And I think people see you as this commanding, in-control presence and being willing to really hear that feedback and reflect so deeply on it that it, it kind of drives your whole next book. I think that's a pretty amazing way to role model the work that you're doing. And you also did something in that story that I noticed you doing in the book a number of times where you're telling a story, you're reflecting on a moment, and you're having like 17 insights all at the yeah. same time. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the reality is most of us don't have the ability to do that kind of processing in the moment. And so if we're in a moment and we may realize something doesn't feel right, I don't have the presence of mind to be doing that level of analysis or reflection. Yeah. What advice do you have for us? If we're in a moment that kind of feels wonky, how do we handle it? Yeah, I think it's so important, these gobsmacked moments that all of us have at work where somebody says or does something that is so incredibly offensive that and just wrong that we hardly know what to say. Uh, so I have tons of compassion for those moments. I've had many, many of them. It feels like workplace injustice is one giant hairball that is impossible to untangle. And so what I tried to do is create a framework so that we can name the very different kinds of things that happen. And so for me, the root causes of workplace injustice are bias, prejudice, and bullying. And these are, these are big words that have long, lots of great books written about them, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna boil it down to some very simple definitions. Bias for me is not meaning it. It's unconscious bias. Prejudice for me is meaning it. This is where someone has a very conscious belief that someone else is in some way, shape, or form inferior because of who they are, because of some sort of fundamental attribute. And bullying happens when somebody is just being mean. So bias is not meaning it. 
prejudice is meaning it and bullying is being mean. And for me, those kinds of simple definitions help me get a sense of what's happening. And for me, the real benefit of beginning to distinguish between these three things is that the response to them needs to be very different. So if these attitudes or behaviors are directed at me, if I think it's unconscious bias, I find it's best to respond with an I statement. An I statement invites the person in to understand things from your perspective. I don't think you meant that the way it sounded, or I don't think you're going to ever treat me as a serious professional when you're referring to me as pretty girl or whatever the situation might be. Whereas when you're dealing with someone's prejudice, you need an it statement. You need to draw a clear boundary between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want. People can believe whatever they want, but they cannot do or say whatever they want. They cannot impose their beliefs on you. And that boundary needs to be clear because if you respond to prejudice with an I statement, I don't think you meant that the way it sounded, the person is going to say, oh, yes, I did. I really believe that and blah, 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 blah. And so so you want an it statement and an it statement can appeal to the law. It is illegal to refuse to hire someone because of their hair. It can, it can't, for example, it can appeal to a code of conduct at a company or HR policies. It, it is a violation of HR policy too. Or it can appeal to common sense or common human decency. It is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of her hair or his hair. So that's prejudice. And then with bullying, you want to respond with a you statement that kind of pushes the person away from you. If an I statement invites someone in to understand things from your perspective, a you statement, you can't talk to me like that. Or even if that feels like it's going to escalate too much, what's going on for you here? Putting the onus on the other person to answer the questions is is a good way to respond to bullying. And my daughter actually taught me that when she was in third grade. She was getting bullied at school, and I was counseling her to use an I statement. I feel sad when you do this. And she said, Mom... He is trying to make me feel sad. Telling him he succeeded is like giving him a cookie. And I'm like, oh, yes, of course. You're exactly right. It was like really <laughs> wise from the, from the mouths of babes. And so you really want to make sure that you're adjusting how you're speaking, depending on what you think it is. And I also want to say that people should not feel the need to know for sure what's going on. Maybe you think it's bias, but it's actually prejudice. But if you say something, you're going to get some more information and you're going to find out mm. a little bit more about what it is. Yeah, and it sounds like even just having your antenna up and paying attention is an important first step, right? It's If something doesn't feel okay, you might need to figure out later what exactly is happening, but just pay attention because your instinct yes. is probably correct. And I think it's so important to remind people that the burden of correcting this stuff, this junk, mm -hmm. shouldn't be all on the people who are harmed by it. We, all of us, need to be better upstanders. And the story I just told you about my colleague of many years, I had been a bad upstander. I hadn't noticed what was going on and I hadn't I hadn't spoken up when, when I wish I had. One of my favorite stories about bias comes from Aileen Lee, who walked into a meeting. She was working at Kleiner Perkins at the time. She walked into a meeting with two colleagues who were men. And the, the company they were meeting with came in. The first guy came in and sat across from one of the guys. Another guy came in and sat across from the other guy. 
And then two other guys from the other company came in and sat on the edge. So Aileen is off on her own at the, mm-hmm. a, at the end. Of, so it's kind of a, a biased seating pattern. And then, of course, as soon as she starts speaking, everybody's ignoring her. And one of her partners stood up and he said, I think I should switch seats with Aileen so that you can hear what she has to say. And this was like such a simple intervention, so much easier for him to speak up than it would have been for her. And it was important to him to do that for two reasons. One was that he cared about Aileen, but two, he wanted to win the business. And he knew that it was Aileen's skills that the company they were meeting with need, needed to hear and learn about. And so, so I think it's really important to be conscious of what your role is when you're confronting mm-hmm. these things. Yeah, we all play a role in any dynamic that we're a part of. When you use the word upstander, is that a synonym for an advocate? Is that a synonym for a doer? How would you define an upstander? Yeah. So an upstander is the opposite of a bystander. A bystander ah. just observes something. Mm-hmm. And an upstander actually stands up and intervenes. And there's some risk in the term upstander. When I say upstander, I mean standing up to the injustice, not Mm -hmm. sort of asserting yourself as the stronger person and the person who's harmed. That's great. That's really helpful. Thank you. In Just Work, you talk a little bit about your previous book, Radical Candor, and how part of your mission with that book was to redefine how we think about nice right? And sort of challenge our assumption that you either are radically candor or you're nice. And what I took away from that book is it's not one or the other. They absolutely go hand in hand when you understand the concepts. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit in this context about, you know, what does it mean to be nice and feel true to your integrity and be an upstander? How do those kind of overlay with each other? One of the most common excuses that people give for not being an upstander is some version of, oh, they meant well, oh, they're a good, good person, and, and so I'm not going to say anything. And the fact of the matter is, if you like this person who just said something that is, is biased or worse, then you will point out them, their mistake to them because you care, because you care about them, because you know that they are a person who wants to do better. As my son's baseball coach <laughs> said, you can't do right if you don't know what you're doing wrong. And I think when we're working mm. with people, the, the vast majority, at least of people that I've worked with in my career, they want to do the right thing. They really do. We don't always know what the right thing is, and we don't always notice when we're doing something that is harming another person. And the only way, I mean, I guess some people can find self-awareness and enlightenment alone in a cave, but I'm not one of those people. I need other people to tell me. And so I think that it is our, our obligation to each other to, to point out mistakes that we're making when we're making them so that we can stop making them. Otherwise, we'll keep on making them. Silent, that's why silence is complicity. When you observe bias, somebody doing something biased or somebody bullying someone else in a meeting and you don't do or say anything, then you are reinforcing that behavior, especially bullying. I mean, bullying works unless there are real consequences for it. And this is where leaders, by the way, it's not only upstanders who have a role to play. Leaders need to to create 
real consequences for bullying. They need to articulate a code of conduct so people know where that line is between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want, but it's not okay to do or say whatever you want. And also bias. We need not just unconscious bias training is not going to do it. We need bias interrupters. We need to disrupt bias and we need to make that uh, expected on the team uh, to, to disrupt bias in a meeting. Because I promise you, something biased gets said in every meeting, in every company, every day, every hour of every day. Yeah. And that actually is part of what I wanted to ask you next, because I I think that a lot of us probably have the chops to recognize when something really flagrant is happening. But what about whether we want to call them microaggressions or whatever word you choose to use, but when one of these prejudice, bias, bullying is showing up in, in a really sort of gentle or passive way, if it's not too offensive to associate yeah. those words, what do you do if you're thinking, oh, is this a thing? Is this not a thing? One of the things that I recommend is, and that I really want to drive home with this book, is there is a default to silence. And we need to challenge, we need to change the default to silence. Uh, because I think there's a risk of speaking up. And this is another very common reason people get for not speaking up. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. <laughs> These repetitive stress injury is a big deal. And so if you think about it, if you think about it, sometimes it's like getting your ergonomic uh, situation straightened out so that you don't give yourself and your team repetitive stress injury. And so these, these microaggressions can take the form of bias, they take the form of bullying, and they take the form of prejudice. There's subtle things that get said or done in meetings, like sitting. Like, was it, you know, was it a federal offense not to sit across the table from Aileen Lee? No, of course it wasn't a federal offense, but it needed to be addressed. It needed to be changed. And so the more we think about the benefit of speaking up, we, we're very acutely aware of the costs, the risks of speaking up. But the more we can take a moment just to calculate the benefits of speaking up, then I think we'll speak up more often. And and again, especially if you're the person harmed, I want to say it's your choice. You get to choose how to respond or if you respond. But don't default to silence because when we default to silence every time, we lose our agency over the course of a career. And so I think it's really important to, to be aware. I'll, I'll give you a really simple example. I was, shortly after I had kids, I was interviewing at a company. And I really liked the company. I really liked the founders. And uh, the interview process was going pretty well. And then at one point, one of the founders, it was a startup, one of the founders explained to me that they do yoga as a company every day at 7 p.m. And my, I had just, I had these two, tw these little twins that were not quite one. And my mind was just reeling. I thought, oh my gosh, you do yoga at seven. It's over at eight. I'm going to get home at nine. I will never see my babies. And I got to know this guy later and I am a hundred percent certain. I can say with a hundred percent certainty now that if I had pointed out to him that he was creating an environment that was impossible for parents, he would have changed the time of the yoga. <laughs> But I didn't say anything. It was like it was a it was a, a bias on his and and he did not mean any harm. All I did was remain silent and kind of pull myself out of the interview process, which was meant that I was bearing the burden because it would it was a great job and a great company. So I wish I had said something to him. 
Yeah, it's an interesting example. And I'll say that in in a broad array of contexts, when I'm coaching or I'm working with an organization, I often advise, unless something is coming across as blatantly bullying or prejudice, nine times out of 10, assume positive intent with the other person, right? He's not trying to be discriminating against parents. He just doesn't know. And he needs the information pointed out. And sometimes something that feels really uncomfortable, that feels like it's going to be an accusation, for him, that probably would have been an insight. It probably yeah. would have really been helpful to him. Yeah, yeah. And I think this, the notion of assuming good intent, it certainly has stood me in good stead. I also want to point out, though, that for me, or what people have pointed out to me, my freedom, my privilege to to assume good intent is a privilege. Not everybody can assume good intent. Having said that, I think if you can sort of give the person the opportunity to do the right thing, then often they will take that opportunity and they will do the right thing. And I think that is really important to realize. I want to say, though, sometimes we are in the role of the person who causes harm. And so very often when someone tells me that I have said or done something that harmed another person, it's tempting for me to tell them, I didn't mean it, assume good intent. And that is a misuse of the term because it's my job when I get this feedback, it's my job to listen and address, listen to the feedback and address the feedback. Uh, it's not my job to tell the person, I didn't mean to hurt you. I mean, it's if you boil it down to a simple example, let's imagine that I'm accidentally stepping on someone's toe. And they tell me, hey, you're stepping on my toe. I wouldn't stand there and continue stepping on the toe and say, I didn't mean to step. I would get off the damn toe, right? And so I think that is really important to remember. I think can be very positive to assume good intent of others. It can be very negative to demand that they assume good intent of you. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And I think that's a really helpful point. So thank you. So I know that my listeners are a blend. Some are people leaders, some are individual contributors. And I would love it if you could maybe lay out one call to action or one single most piece of advice for people who are leaders and want to make sure that they are creating the right culture within their organizations. And maybe for people who aren't leaders, maybe they're more junior in their careers. What's the one thing you want each of those avatars to take away from today? So if you are a leader, my advice to you is to create bias interrupters on your team. So what do I mean by that? I mean, create a shared vocabulary on the team that everyone will use to flag bias when they observe it in a meeting. Words matter, but I can't tell you what words to use. You're going to have to choose the words that work for you. There's one team that we worked with that likes to throw a purple flag. So every time someone observes bias in the meeting, someone throw, and they have purple flags, they throw a purple flag. Another team that I've worked with liked to say bias alert, just very simple, straightforward. The key thing is that it should just be a couple of words. The point here is that everybody knows when somebody says bias alert, that they've observed something that that seems biased to them. And then the person who said or did the biased thing, the potentially biased thing, has two choices of how to respond. And you got to teach this as a leader on your team and make this a norm. They can either say, you're right, I'm sorry, thanks for pointing it out. Or they can say, I don't quite get it, can we talk after the meeting? And this is really important because it, it... if we, if we flag bias in every meeting, 
And then we spend the rest of the meeting explaining why it was biased. <laughs> we will not get shit done, as the book says. So, so it needs to be quick, but it needs to happen all the time. Because if we remain silent about bias when we observe it in a meeting, then we are reinforcing it. We are ensuring that it will happen again. But that's one of the things I, I would love people listening to take away. And then if you are not a leader, what do you do? I, I really recommend thinking about this I, you, it business. And so what are you going to, do you think it's bias? Do you think it's prejudice? Do you think it's bullying? How are you going to respond? And remember the importance of your role as upstander. And you don't have to say something directly in the meeting if it feel, if it feels risky to you. Sometimes just going to the person afterwards and saying, gosh, I noticed this. Are you okay? Can be a huge benefit. One time I was in a meeting and this, the man introducing me, he shook the first man's hand. We're in front of 500 people. He shakes the first man's hand. He shakes the second man's hand. And then he introduces me. And instead of shaking my hand, he like makes this ridiculously low bow, grabs my hand and kisses it, you know, and he like practically spits on my hand. It was disgusting. (laughs) And I talked to him. He didn't get it at all. But the thing that was almost worse than what he did was that nobody came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I'm sorry that happened. And so then I was left with this feeling of generalized hostility. It's almost like gaslighting when something that obviously bad happens and nobody comes up to you. So your role as an upstander, even if you just approach the person who was harmed by whatever it is that happened and talk to them later, it's really important. Absolutely. I love all of that advice. And a couple things that I took away are, you know, for the leader to create those bias interrupters and it's a quick word or a quick flag and you move on, you normalize it a little bit, right? You just make it part of a routine and we move ahead and we don't run the risk of getting lost in spin or totally derailing the conversation. And then I love the, well, I hate everything you just said because that sounded (laughs) gross, but I, I love the part about First of all, sometimes it's okay to say something later because yeah. I think for some people it feels really intimidating to to lean into the moment and so giving yeah. people permission to say something later but also to recognize that um something like that it it does feel a little bit I don't know, you feel soiled after yeah. on some yeah. level and just knowing that somebody else recognized that moment for what it was can be really empowering, I yeah. I would imagine. And so yeah. I mean we all want to be understood and you can help people feel understood. Well, Kim, once again, this has been just an incredible honor and a pleasure and I want to absolutely validate there is so much more wonderful and actionable advice in the book. I can't wait for it to get into all of the hands. But for today, thank you so much for being here and for your insight. And um, congratulations on launch day. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed Kim as much as I did. I love the simplicity and frankly, the radically candid approach she brings to issues of workplace justice. If you'd like to learn more, pick up her new book, Just Work, wherever books are sold. Have a question I can answer? Check out all the links in my bio for ways you can reach me. You can also visit my website at leadabovenoise.com or follow me on the Modern Mentor Podcast page on LinkedIn, where I share exclusive tips, videos, and musings. Join me next week for another great episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening and have a successful week. Modern Mentor is produced by Dan Farabend, edited by Karen Hertzberg, and supported by the rest of the Quick and Dirty Tips team. 
which includes Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, and our Vice President of Podcasting, Kathy Doyle. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.